come back this morning to the consideration of the section found in the book of Romans, chapters 9 through 11. And we've come to the center of the discussion that Paul gives beginning in chapter 9. And that is, we're coming into the consideration of chapter 10. This is a week that I began like a house on fire in the book of Romans, uh, gleaning principles and understandings and being able to put together things I had never seen before. And I remember coming home from my studies on Tuesday and just telling my wife, you know, this is what I saw and how I begin to understand this or that and the next thing. And I thought, man, this is a great beginning of the week. And uh, I'm going to come back to this and I'm going to solidify these points and come and present it in a, in a, in a, in a, in a dynamic teachable way that you're just going to be really impressed with me. <laughs> and then as I began the studies for the ministry of the day, uh, which is, of course, the Christmas message of the morning and Christmas evening, um, I have to confess I got waylaid. I got sidetracked and I, in a good way, in a good way. And uh, I spent much of the remainder of my week in those passages in Matthew 1 and verse 21 in Matthew 2, 1 through 12, and I have to confess, I didn't really get, ever get back to Romans in terms of my plans. But uh, again, I've learned in the ministry, you don't always get to do the things that you planned for a number of reasons, and uh, Christmas being one and the Christmas sermons being uh, another. So I got my shopping done, I got my sermons done, my Sunday school kind of up in the air. But what I did, um, I put on the board just the, the, the heart of the insights that I have come up with, and I'm going to look to flesh it out a bit in uh, weeks to come. And that's simply to begin the process of putting this stuff into an outline, which I, I like to do. I like to see how things in the scriptures are structured and just how the flow of thought goes. And you know, sometimes I see it clearly, sometimes not at all. And Romans 9 to 11 has always been a difficult section of the book of Romans, not just for me, but you just read the commentaries and see how they just conflict with one another in their perceptions and understandings. But I think the main thing that uh, I gleaned that I think is, is right and it's important is what you have up here. The whole discussion from Romans 9 to 11 is this problem of Israel's unbelief. And how that unbelief on the part of Israel has affected Jewish-Gentile relations within the church. So Paul's not just going off on speculation about uh, well, Jewish unbelief and what does it all mean in the cosmic meaning of life. He's directing it to the situation there in Rome. And the difficulties that uh, Jews and Gentiles are having getting on with one another, uh, particularly in the light of the history that we've already discussed of the prominence of the Jewish ethnicity when the church was founded and then Jews having to leave Rome, uh, Gentiles coming in, filling in the gap, and then Jews are allowed to come back and now where does it all lead? Who's to lead this uh, motley group of Christians in the Roman house churches and how is all this to um, play out? And there was tension and, and, and troubles and difficulties and this is something reflected on in the letter throughout and that's why Paul does the things like we've seen to the Jew first, also to the Gentiles or the Greeks, and then saying there's no distinction that all of sin falls short of the glory of God, no distinction, we're all saved by faith uh, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, uh, he levels everyone. There's no advantage to the Jew, no advantage to the Gentile, there's no preferences with God. We all stand naked, open, revealed before the eyes of him with whom we have to do with all that's Hebrews. You're taking it into that thought that Paul's endeavoring to put forth in the book of Romans. 
And so now he comes to discuss the thing in a more formal way, uh, to lay it out just in terms of um, what, does it all, what does it all mean and, and, and how does it all happen and what does it say about the faithfulness of God? That's the particular issue that uh, chapter 9 raises. Has the word of God failed? Is the question that he asks. And uh, he answers that question by looking at past perspectives. He's going back to the Old Testament. He's going back to God's dealings with Abraham uh, in terms of Ishmael's birth and Isaac's birth and then the next generation and the birth of Esau and Jacob. He's going back in terms of the situation of taking the people out of Israel, showing mercy to whom he will have mercy and compassion to whom he will have compassion and hardening the heart of Pharaoh and all that comes in. And then in the midst of that, uh, there's not only those historical figures and the reality that God has in Israel that's not just according to the flesh. He has an Israel that is um, determined by an election of grace. It's, uh, God, God has determined his people. And he's done that in all generations. And that is fairly clear as you go back and follow out his logic. But then, of course, there's those questions that Paul raises that I suggested should be questions raised in faith, answered in faith. Why does he still find fault? He's resisted his will and the rest and coming to take our place before the Lord as his creatures, recognizing the creature-creator distinction. And then he goes into the Old Testament prophecies with respect to the nation of Israel and the fact that God's always dealt on the principle of the remnant, that a remnant shall return. If the Lord did not have mercy uh, and was not a remnant, then this, the nation just would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah, Isaiah chapter 1. So he looks at these Old Testament passages bringing in the remnant principle. And so that's chapter 9, looking at the back uh, the backstory uh, of God's dealings with his people, defining who Israel is, uh, addressing the question of um, his justice and his, uh, uh, his, his, his fairness and his right to show forth sovereign mercy in those matters, and then raising the question of the Old Testament uh, prophetic hope with respect to Israel and the coming to about of a remnant. And also God making... making uh, the people of Israel jealous by people that are not a people who become the people of God. And that's the theme he's going to take up again in chapter 11 in particular. Um, but as we come into chapter 10, the basic theme moves away from the past to the present. And what Paul's doing here, I think more than anything, is he's diagnosing the present problem. The problem of Jewish unbelief. Why is it? How did it come about? Why don't the Jews believe in Christ? They've heard the gospel. The word of God's not far from them. The word's gone out to the ends of the earth. Why have the Jews who had the, had the word, had the promises, had all the advantages, why have they missed their Messiah? Why have they failed to come to uh, embrace him? You know, he uses some language and analogies that are really interesting to understand uh, this present plight and how it's to be understood. And then in chapter 11, uh, there's more of a direction toward a future hope. Now, in saying that there is this past, present, future uh, movement, uh, that's the general movement. It's not that he doesn't address past issues and present issues and the future part and um, 
No, no, it, it's not. It's not. These are not the airtight, uh, hermetically sealed categories. These are basic uh, flow of thought moving from the past to the present problem to the future hope. So, I just want to set that before you because it's kind of like the outline I'm going to be working with, and I'm going to look in the coming weeks. Was my hope to do this week was to fill it out a little bit more, but I didn't get that far. Um, this matter of the present uh, diagnosis of, 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 of the problem, it, um, you know, again, we have divisions of our Bibles um, that, um, try to think of the name of the guy that put it into, I had it in my mind and now I forgot. Anybody remember? It's like a 13th century guy that. Did the chapters? What is it? The, the guy who did the chapters? Did the chapters, yeah, chapters and verses. He, What's that? Verses came a couple hundred years later. Yeah, okay. Okay, well, uh, however it was done, whoever did it, you can Google it and find out. Um, but, but one of the things about having these chapter divisions and versification is very handy to find pl places you're looking for in the Bible. It's, uh, you know, I'm not at all saying it, it, should, it should look like a, you know, a modern novel. You just open it up and there's just try to find, try to find the place where, uh, you know, Roger Ackroyd was actually murdered. And, you know, you don't know where to go in an Agatha Christie thing. You kind of have to glean through a lot to get to the place that you're looking for. Anyway, um, thankful. I'm sorry? Stephen Langton. Stephen Langton. Thank you. Stephen Langton. Um, but the fact that Chapter 10 comes where it does. From one perspective, you can understand it. It's it, Paul doing what he did at the beginning in chapter 9 and verse 1, um, speaking about his great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his brothers, the Israelites. And then he goes back to that, to his own heart's longing uh, to see the Jew, Jewish people saved. Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And um, so you understand why they make it the division there. Paul's moving back to the state of his heart with respect to all these things. Um, but actually, the argument in terms of the present diagnosis of the problem begins a little bit before. It really with verse 30. We said some things about that last time, but I want to go back to verse 30. And I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read uh, to chapter 10 and verse 4. So we may cover all of this, we may not, but uh, I'll have at least some things to say about this section, whether we cover it fully or not. Uh, Paul says, what shall we say then? So he's drawing conclusions from the things he has said about his past discussion about Israel and the definition and all of the rest that's in the previous section. And he draws a conclusion. What shall we say then? What's the conclusion we can draw from all of this? Well, it's that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in attaining or reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. And this is kind of a conflation of Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then he goes back to his own heart's consideration of this state of circumstances as to why the Jews have not attained 
the law of righteousness and says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And again, remember he said before that uh, Israel, who has pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. They did not come to attain righteousness. Uh, he says, I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Being ignorant of the, the problem is that they were ignorant of how to attain the righteousness of God. They were doing it all the wrong way. And seeking to establish their own, that's the wrong way, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So that really is an argument that's all to be together. Paul's addressing the whole question of what ails the Jew? What's the problem with the Jew? Why have they come to this place of unbelief where they do not receive the message concerning their own Messiah? And Paul's answer is they're seeking it the wrong way. They're seeking it in their own way, in an unauthorized way. And, and he uses something of, a, of an imagery here. The, the language itself uh, lends itself to the thought of someone looking to get to the goal line in a sport of, sports event. You see a race and you're looking to complete the race. You're looking to get it done. You're looking to arrive at the goal. And um, so the Gentiles who weren't in the race at all, that's the idea. The Gentiles who weren't running in this race at all, they could care less about the righteousness of God concerning Israel's God. They had their own religious superstitions and beliefs that they were following. And they were fairly well contented in the whole thing. Maybe a lot of it didn't make them su supremely happy. But, but anyway, you know, Life is life, and you just go on in your unbelief. But they weren't concerned for the things that the Jews were concerned about. The Jews had issues of the law that uh, called them to righteousness, uh, a kind of lifestyle before, before the Lord. And they defined that lifestyle as that which is contained in the law. And as long as we obey the law and keep the law and have practices that conform to the law, Maybe somehow, some way, somewhere, at the end of the at the end of the day, righteousness can come about. We'll get to the end. We'll get to the finish line. We'll cross the finish line, and we'll be the victors. But it's all based upon law keeping, a righteousness which is according to the law. And Paul's problem with that is, is that the faith component is simply not present. You see, the problem with Israel is that having all of these advantages spoken about in chapter 9, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. They had the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Uh, they did not make use of this advantage in, in a proper way. They came to take many of these blessings and made them an end in themselves. And these blessings were never intended to be the thing that you seek. It's that through these blessings, a greater reality is sought. And that's Israel's God. See, the whole matter of the question of human purpose in this world is not to be law keepers so much as to be properly related to the God of the law. 
you know, we can do our best to be good and law keepers without seeking Him. And we're called to seek Him. And God intervenes in human history in acts of great power to do what? Well, to bring people to Himself. Prior to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, is the Lord Himself who declared, You've seen what I've done how I have destroyed the Egyptians and brought you on eagles' wings, where? To myself. I brought you to myself. We're made for him. We're made to know him. We're made to have relationships with him. The greatest horror with human sin is that sin distances us from God. Sin separates us from God. I know we, we'll say a little bit later today about other elements that we tend to think of when we think of sin. And this distance part, sometimes we don't have clearly in our thoughts. Although, you know, we know it's true. That sin separates us from God. But um, redemption calls us back. And God's redeeming power, bringing Israel out of Egyptian bondage, was not just to make them law keepers. It's not just, I'm the king, here's my law, go and do it. It's the whole question of why you do it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it's out of that love to God that you keep his commandments. Remember the passage we looked at some summer, a couple summers ago in um, Deuteronomy, I think it's 10-12, or 12-10, one of the two. <laughs> you go back and look. <laughs> Where it says, you know, what does the Lord require of you? What does he require of you? And these, these like five elements of things that the Lord required of them. And I don't remember what, the, what all of them were. I'm going to try to. But the middle one is to love him. And generally speaking, when you have these odd numbered things, it's all the first couple with a point to the middle and the last two flow out from it. The central thing is to love him. It's also the shortest thing. But it, it says things like, well, let's, let's look at it. It's, uh, it's Deuteronomy. It's always good to look back at great passages. And this is, this is like a, um, uh, an epitomizing passage. That's the word I'm looking for. It's an epitomizing passage that really epitomizes the whole question of Israel's relationship um, to its God. Uh, here it is, uh, this is after chapter 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, the Shema. But here, this whole matter is re repeated and underscored and given something of a form. Uh, that really should help us to see the, the issues that God's mostly concerned about. And now Israel, what does Yahweh, your God, require of you? And again, he's your God. There is this entrance into a personal relationship to this God. He's your God. Personal pronouns are used. What does Yahweh, your God, require of you? What is the answer? Well, first of all, to fear Yahweh, your God. To have a healthy reverence for who he is. To live as in his presence. You know, the wonderful thing about the fear of the Lord, it's, it's not a, a negative. It's not a... Um, a cringing fear that's being spoken of. In Leviticus, uh, I've often pointed this out, but I'll do it again this morning. It, it tells us we're not to put a stumbling block before the blind or curse the deaf. 
And you might think, what's the big deal? You curse the deaf, who hears? Who hears? Well, it goes on to say, uh, you put a stumbling block before the, the blind, he's not going to know who did it. You know, trip him up, put your leg out, let him trip over it. He's blind, he's not going to know who did it. But in each of those statements, you shall not put a stumbling block before the blind. It says, but you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall fear Yahweh. Don't, put, don't curse the deaf, but fear the Lord. Because even though the deaf won't know who said those things, there is one who knows. And though the blind will not know who tripped him up, there is one who knows. And so to not do these things, but to fear Yahweh, is to live in the presence of Yahweh. It's to live with a healthy acknowledgement that he is near. Because the whole reason for God's, for human existence is to live before God. It's to live as in his sight, to live in his presence, to be accountable to him. That these are the great emphases of the Old Testament with respect to Israel's relationship to God. And so the first thing is to fear Yahweh your God, then to walk in all of his ways. And it's interesting, his ways are what we are to walk in. And it tells us that he showed to Moses his ways, his acts to the children of Israel. But his ways were still to be seen. His ways of mercy, his ways of love, his ways that show forth an example of who God is, having compassion upon his captive people, having a yearning in his heart over them. And there's a sense in which our duty is not just confined to the law, is confined to our knowledge of who God is, how God acts, and we're to do what God does. We're image bearers. We're to replicate what God does. And so we're to fear Him, live as in His sight. We're to walk in His ways. And then to love Him. To love Him. To have a heart's commitment to Him to seek the things that are pleasing before Him. When you love somebody, you do the things that please them. I'm still working on that in my own marriage. But, you know, I am putting the toothpaste up in the, the top rather than in the... You know, is I take everything and I'll stick it in this little glass jar that's on the, on the, on the sink and I'll just, you know crowd things into it and then my wife comes along sees what I've done and she takes the razor out and she puts it on the bottom shelf she'll take the toothpaste out and put it on the top shelf and it's kind of like she's giving me the example she's giving me um, you don't know what to do here I'll show you what to do that's my wife's ways so out of love I seek to follow her ways I don't always do it right sometimes in the early morning I get it wrong but yet love makes those demands to do the things that are pleasing in the eyes of the one whom you love. And then um, out from the love of God comes um, serving the Lord, to be servants of the Lord, to stand at God's command, to stand before him and say, Lord, what will you have me to do? And to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So recognition, I'm not my own. I belong to another. And to glorify God in my body. 
And then finally, it's to keep the commandments. You know, we place that first, almost exclusively. We put it alone and say, it's the commandments that are the all-important thing. I don't deny the commandments of God are very, very important. I don't want to minimize them in any single way. But I am saying that just commandment keeping, just abiding by the rules and doing the things that were commanded, is not Christianity. It's not Old Testament Judaism either. The things that God required of his people, yes, involves keeping the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but it's in this way. It's in this way of living in his presence, fearing him, walking in his ways, loving him, serving him with all our heart and with all our soul. And if those things are not present, our commandment keeping can be very, first of all, cold, unedifying. Uh, it's not going to last very long. It's kind of like, you know, the 60s. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love, love is all you need. And you can sing that all day long and say, yes, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. And you just say, I'm going to go out and just love everyone to death. How long does that last if you have just a, a finite ability to love? I mean, if, if, if love is all you need, we're not good at that, are we? We run out of motivation. We run out of ability. One little thing about it, being a Christian is we're connected to an eternal source. <laughs> an eternal source of good, an eternal source of love. And we live before that God. But even when we're at the end of our wits, and we just don't know how we're ever going to manifest love to anyone else, say, Lord... Grant me what I need. You call me to love my neighbor, to love my enemy. I can't do that on my own. And we're connected to an eternal source of grace, an eternal source of good, an eternal source that gives us the gift and the benefit that, to do the things that he has commanded. So that, we're, again, that's whole, the whole matter of obedience is we're not alone in this. We're not alone. It's not just, uh, you know, you know, just motivate yourself let's get yourself up in the morning say I'm going to do this 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 I'm going to obey 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 you run out of steam we all run out of steam and it's out of our union with Christ that we get the resources that we need is to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might and when that dynamic is missing we're just not very good at this we're not very good at this whole matter of obedience to begin with but it has to be within the framework of this redemptive grace and power of the living and true God. And Paul is saying the Jews have lost sight of it. They've made the temple an end in itself, and that's lended itself to hypocrisy. And they've made the law of God an end in of itself, and it's lent itself to all kinds of additions to the law, of traditions that they've added to the law of ways in which they could gratify themselves or think of themselves as being good law keepers when they're not anywhere near the kind of obedience God requires because all these other elements are not there. What they're missing is faith. They're missing that faith that brings godly fear. They're missing the faith that brings us into the orbit of knowing the ways of God. They're missing the faith that brings us to love God. The faith that brings us to serve God. And the faith that brings us out of that whole co complex of realities to obey God. But it's all a package, you see. 
And the Jews separated it. They made the law an end in itself. Get righteousness through the law. They never get to the end of the race. They never get to the finish line. They're running all the wrong way. They put weights on their legs and they're just not get, making progress. They can't get there. Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness if they did it in God's way, if they did it in faith, they did not succeed in reaching that law of righteousness. They didn't get there. They didn't get to the finish line. Because God never designed his law to be done in any other way than faith. That's why I have a little patience with the sort of thing, I'm not seeing it as much as I used to, but back in the day, I began to see just, not so much our original teachers, but the people that followed a lot of the really strong Reformed Baptist teaching that I received as a young Christian, they began to say, well, you know, we know the law is really important, so we really have to get to get people on track with doing the things that the law of God said. And they began to speak about Christian ethics and Christian morality in ways that you could listen to their sermons and say, where's Jesus in any of this? He's sort of excluded. It's just like, you know, get motivated, guys. Let's be doing what God said to do. But in a way that any rabbi could have preached the sermon, any Islamic imam could have preached that sermon, said those things, but it was not said in a Christocentric manner, where Jesus is central to everything. And just simply, biblical ethics begin with redemption, begins with what Jesus has done for us. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body's living sacrifice. And we're not getting to until chapter 12. But that's how Paul teaches ethics. He teaches ethics from the vantage point of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Faith is the key. There's an old song from the 60s. People get ready, there's a train coming. Faith is the key. You don't get on that train without faith. And you don't get to the destination without faith. Faith is the key. The Gentiles who weren't in this race at all, they've gotten to be leaders in the race. Why? They've attained it, Paul says, because it's a righteousness that's by faith. They've come to believe. And through faith, there is that transfer of our relationship with God from strangers to sons and daughters, um, of slaves to, again, God's sons. We're taken out of wrath into grace. We're justified. And being justified, we can now live before the presence of God. Lives of righteousness. You know, there's an old, old story, what does righteousness mean? Does it mean, you know, legal righteousness? Is it the righteousness of the courtroom? The judge saying, not guilty? Yeah, that's part of it. 
it's not the whole of it. <laughs> you know? It's interesting. When we only take it in that legal legal perspective, because again, we know it's more than just the judge saying not guilty because there's actually the imputation of the righteousness of Christ that's given to believers that's not in that particular formula that you find in the law court. You know, you can leave the courtroom and the judge says you're not guilty, but he doesn't say, well, that means you're forgiven of everything you're about to do all the way down the line. It doesn't have to do with future conduct. It doesn't have to do with any other conduct but the matters that which are before the court at that moment. You know, you can leave the courtroom and they say you're not guilty and go out and arrest you again for something else. <laughs> you know, but God doesn't do that. God doesn't say you're forgiven and I'm going to arrest you for something else. You know, God the judge says you're righteous. But then he declares us righteous not only in the law court, but all the way through our lives in the conscience of our hearts, where we have a sense that we have pleased him or displeased him, that we've had his smile or his frown. There is that sense that's given to us through the word of God, convicting us of our sins and the Holy Spirit that works in us. Or again, living before God, we pursue righteousness, that positive obedience to his will and his, um, and his word. And then there will be that ultimate day when we'll stand in his presence and it will say, well done, good and faithful servants. And we'll say, what in the world does that mean? What do we do? And he'll declare merits that we didn't even know about. Because, again, God's judgment is not legal in every respect. There's a respect in which it has parallels to the law court. I think the problem with modern Christianity in a lot of ways, Protestant Christianity, I mean Reformed Christianity, is we want to, we want to live in the law court. <laughs> we want to live with the judicial verdict of God upon us. And God says, no, 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 get out of the law court. Let's come into the living room. Let's come into, <laughs> let's come into the, the, the temple. Let's come into the place of worship. Let's come into, and there's many other spaces in which God meets us as his people that's not the legal court of condemnation and justification that's there but it's not the only thing that's there we tend to be kind of limiting I'll say more than that in the in the morning sermon um, and I got about 15 minutes left and so again I'm going to preach a message this morning that probably some of you are going to say well where do you get that from didn't know that maybe not hopefully not maybe some things that are familiar <laughs> But things I'm going to highlight. Um, and I, I'm not certain at all points as to what I'm going to say needs to be said or what I'm going to say is really something shared by, um, well, again, you guys are, I think, you know my opinion about a lot of things. So maybe, maybe some of the things I think is out there generally in the church at large might not be here. But in chapter 10 and verse 1, when Paul begins to speak about his own heart's attitude towards the unbelief of the nation of Israel that they didn't attain to the law of righteousness that they sought to pursue uh, because they did it on a legal basis and not on a faith basis um, Paul says my, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved is that they may be saved Paul uses the language of soteriology soter we get the Subject of soteriology, doctrine of salvation, from that Greek word, soter. I want them to be saved. I want them to be sotered. Uh, we're going to see it in the morning message. That's the, that's the noun, saved, salvation. He wants salvation to come to them. But in uh, the passage we're going to look at in this Sunday morning is Matthew 1.21. 
where the angel says to Joseph to take Mary, your wife, and she's going to bear a son. He says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And that's the verb, to save, active present tense. Jesus saves his people. Now we sing Jesus saves in songs. We know Jesus saves on um, billboards we see around the countryside. Um, we know that Christians are the sort of people, evangelical Christians, who are going to probably come up to you and ask, are you saved? Or when were you saved? I mean, the language of salvation, we just use continually. And sometimes I wonder if we really know what we're talking about. If we really know what it is that salvation means. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw the classroom open this morning for you to tell me how you would explain to some inquiring person who hears you say, well, I was saved when I was 14, or I was saved when I was 23, or I was saved uh, in this place or that place or under this ministry or that ministry. And they'll come up to you and say, oh, um, hmm, interesting. You said you were saved. What does that mean? What are some of the things you might want to respond with? So, throw it open. What comes to mind? What does it mean to be saved? Yes. Rescued from hell, okay? Well, that's good, because actually the word rescue is really what the concept is. Be rescued or deliverance from some perils. So here we have hell. Hell is the great danger that sin has brought into our lives, and we're exposed to divine judgment, and so we need to be rescued from hell. We done, we done talking? <laughs> Tim. What's that? We're brought from alienation to God to... Okay. Well, that's good. I wonder how many people would say that. We're brought from the peril and the danger of being estranged, separated from God. This distance. So we're saved from estrangement. We're brought back to God. We're brought near to God. How many people will use the language of saved, I was saved this to point to that point, are thinking in those terms? Uh, I think most people are thinking here. They're thinking of salvation from hell. They're thinking of some salvation from judgment. That that's the great peril. That's the great problem that we face as God's people. Um, and then, okay, so any other statements or are we pretty much exhausted you hear in the morning message there's a whole lot more but uh, Vivian did you have one well also creation comes to my mind too, okay the creation is saved from it being um, oh man you are being, we're also recreated also you are so far ahead of the game Vivian <laughs> most evangelicals wouldn't go, go near that but the whole matter of salvation not just being personal but cosmic, a cosmic salvation, the salvation of the entire creation that is estranged from God, that is in sin and guilt, under a curse, that curse being removed, 
Now we sing in our Christmas songs, he comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. That is most excellent, but I really think it's not what most people have in mind when they're talking about salvation. They're not thinking about cosmic salvation. Well, I'll have more to say about this in the morning message. But, um, okay, salvation has these components and, and more. And uh, I'm not going not to spend all my, my ammunition in the morning in worship, so I'll, I'll leave it there unless you want to come up with another one. I got about a half a dozen, but that's for the morning message. Okay, uh, how then are we saved? What is it that saves us? His name shall be Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. How does he do that? What do we. Now, don't try to overthink this. Just as someone in evangelical churches and evangelical circles, what's the answer? Let's do it this way. Let's play Family Feud. Because on Family Feud, you have to give an answer that you think is the one that most people will give. Okay? So, what's number one when uh, he says, How are you saved? What's the number one answer? Thank you. By the death of Jesus. So, all this takes place. Yes, by Jesus, but it's through Jesus' death. Salvation comes through Jesus dying for us. Now, I have done an exhaust, not so much exhaustive as, as I'd like to, but at least a preliminary study of Soter and Soza, the noun form, the verb form that's used in the scriptures for salvation and I see none of it. I see that the language of the scriptures are not speaking about salvation from hell or or salvation by the death of Jesus. In fact, I see something quite different. Now, if you want to talk about justification, you want to talk about the legal stuff, and I think that's our problem, is we're all caught up, caught up with legal matters. We're a litigious society. We're going to sue people. We're going to call, call them into, I mean, you know, think of presidential candidates, how many, law, how many indictments. Law courts settle everything. They throw everything into the law court, and everything is concerned with legal matters. I'm, I'm going to say it in the morning worship. It's in my notes. I don't think court TV would have survived in the first century. They wouldn't know what in the world are you doing? What in the world does that mean? Court TV? Why would anybody pay attention to what's going on in the law courts anyway? It wouldn't be very popular because people were not concerned as much about legality and law and punishment and the rest as we are today. We're, we're consumed with that. Questions of law, questions of punishment. Um, all the crime shows that's what they deal with. Law and order. Cops go out and arrest the offenders, and then it's in the law court. It's in the court. First half is the arrest, then in the court. Um, that's how our society runs. And I think Western society for some time has been um, regulated by those things. I just don't think ancient society was. I don't think you see that in the Gospel of Matthew. But as I said, I'm not going to... Um, Use all my ammunition in the Sunday school. You have to wait in the morning where I look to demonstrate from the passage and other passages as well. But to me, the key thing is it's, it's not so much the death of Christ that saves us. What the death of Christ seems to do in Paul's language 
is it brings about our justification. It brings about our forgiveness of our sins. It is a legal matter when we talk about justification. But again, it's not legal in every respect because God does things that are beyond anything that any legal courtroom will ever do, like impute righteousness to his believing people. I mean, there are things that God does in his own, in his own works that can be called forensic or called legal as far as in excess of anything that any human court would ever do. But the language is borrowed from the law court. In terms of, at least in terms of our uh, transition from wrath to grace. Uh, the whole argument of Romans 3 and 4. But the interesting passage, and I'm going to bring it up in the morning, but I'll show it to you because maybe you're confused. I don't want you to go have your coffee super confused about this. Is uh, that in Romans chapter 5, and to me this, this language is so, so vitally important. Is, um, and I'm going to say more in the morning message, but I'll just read you this. Paul says in verse 9 of chapter 5 of Romans, after he's talked about God showing his love to us and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He died for our sins. Um, while we were sinners. While we were sinners. He died for us. While we were sinners. What were we when he died for us? Sinners, right? What does Matthew 1 21 say? And he uses the language of salvation. Does it say he saves his people while they're still sinners? Is that what the angel said? He'll save his people while they're still sinners. No, no, he justifies his people while they're still sinners. He doesn't save his people while they're still sinners. He saves his people from sin. From sin. Away from sin. Not in sin. In sin, we're justified. You know, the man who... who, who uh, in, in, in chapter 4 uh, works his uh, wages are not a gift but it's, it's his due but it's to the one who doesn't work but believes on him who justifies who? the ungodly the ungodly while they are ungodly his faith is imputed for righteousness Justification is something God does for sinners in their sin, in their guilt. Salvation gets us out of the mess. Now, again, justification is part of that salvation of God, but it's hardly the full extent of it. And that's why it's so interesting here in verse 9 of chapter 5. It says, Since therefore we've now been justified, not saved, but justified by his blood, much more, here's the language of Soter, here's the language of Soza, we shall be saved future tense, we shall be not justified but saved by him from the wrath of God and people say, oh there it is, there's hell hell is in the wrath of God well, what's Paul's first mention of the wrath of God it's chapter 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is, not will be is revealed from heaven he is all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men that hinder the truth and unrighteousness. Wrath of God is displeasing God. It's not just the final judgment at the end. It's not just hell eternally, but it's displeasing God. And so being saved by him from wrath is being saved from divine displeasure. We've been justified by blood. That's his death. He died that we would be forgiven. 
Although we sing the hymn, He died to make us good. Okay, yeah, that's part of the salvation of God to make us good. But if that's not our justification, justification is not making us good. That's Christ's death that has justified us. But we're saved to be made good. We're saved from the wrath of God. And he goes on to say, For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Again, the courtroom, we were estranged. In the courtroom, we were guilty. In the courtroom, we could not draw near. But the death of His Son reconciled us to God. Much more now that we are reconciled. And here's the language again. We shall be saved by His death on the cross. Is that what it says? No. It doesn't say we'll be saved by his death on the cross. It says we shall be saved by his life. By his life. I know we missed the boat on this point, but it seems to me that salvation is by his life. His death justifies us. His death brings us pardon. His death reconciles us. His death does all those things. But his salvation does ever so much more. It's rescue from sin in all of its impact and consequences in a fallen world that, as Vivian points out, even extends to creation itself. Romans 8. More in the morning message on the theme. But just to give you a little hint of where we're, where we're heading. And, and again, am I wrong to think that we're limiting the salvation of God when we think of being saved only in terms of being saved from hell? Well, we'll say some more about that in the morning message, and then maybe you could give me an answer to my query. But let's go before God's presence and seek Him in prayer. Father, we're thankful that salvation brings us the fullness of blessing where cursing once was what we were under. The curse is removed. Our path to you is freed and restored. Our dominion of sin has ended. The sense of loss and distance and meaninglessness and purposelessness of life has now been infused with the genuine understanding of who we are, why we're here, what you require of us, how we might live so as to please you and to have your smile upon our lives. We're thankful that the salvation of our Lord Jesus brings all of those blessings and more to us as your people. And so we pray that we would truly rejoice that a Savior has come, that Christ does come to save his people from all of the consequences, all of the ramifications, all of the peril that sin has brought into a fallen world. And we ask you to receive our thanksgiving and praise as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.